So I believe that there is children's church again today, and so if you are between the ages of two and six, then you want to head on out to the back, and we want to bless you children and also you leaders that are going to spend time with those kids downstairs. Uh, blessings on you. I do want to take just another moment to, uh, to refer to the tragedy that happened in Saskatchewan. I know that different people um, have some connections, and so we want to recognize that. Um, I think Rick and Lloyd's nephew played hockey together with a coach that, uh, that was killed. Um, I also know that Teresa attended school together with a coach and, uh, and his wife, of course, who survives him and their two little kids. Um, my nephew played hockey together with one of the guys that was on the bus. He, uh, this particular guy um, survived the accident. Uh, but it's incredible how quickly the world becomes a smaller place and you, and you hear about different people who have connections with different people that were very, very closely um, involved. And so uh, we want to recognize all of that. We want to um, recognize the hurt and the pain and the, and the difficulty. And, um, and we want to pledge to continue to uh, lift people up in prayer and to trust and believe that God uh, will spread his big, big umbrella over top of that entire situation and, uh, and that his grace. Um, one of the truths that was, uh, also came out in the video that Kim referred to earlier, the, the the, the video this morning in Sunday School that spoke about the incredible glory of God referring to the universe. Um, but then there was a little nugget in there that, that spoke to me about the fact that his grace is just as big and as magnificent as his glory. And so uh, I trust and believe that when these kinds of things happen, that God's grace is in a supernatural way enveloping and speaking to and infiltrating in ways that we actually have no clue how it exactly is happening. And so we trust in the supernaturalness of God to, uh, to speak into situations where, um, where our thoughts find it difficult to go. Pardon me? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea. Thank you, Joe. Um, the suggestion here is that we take a minute and that we do pray together. And so uh, I want to invite all of you, um, if they can do this at, uh, at hockey games across the country or across the continent, then I think we can do that here also. And that is to observe a moment of silence uh, for the... for the people involved in the uh, tragedy. And so uh, let's observe a moment of silence. And of course, during that period of time, I want to invite you to, to be in your own way, in your own language, um, lifting up people, individuals, and the situation to our Heavenly Father. Thank you. Thank you, God, that um, you invite us to trust in this supernaturalness of your glory and your grace. 
speak words of encouragement and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. The other little thing that, uh, that I had going on this last week is that uh, I once again feel um, somewhat connected to young teenage boys because I went through a, a, a voice change again this last week. <laughs> I feel like I'm still in the middle of that voice change. And so if from time to time we have to reach down for this glass of water here, then I hope you'll forgive me. And also if, uh, if there's a little excitement in my voice, thank you Les, if there's a little less excitement in my voice uh, uh, from time to time today, it's not because I'm less passionate about what I'm preaching about, uh, it's just simply uh, to avoid a, a, a rather rambunctious round of coughing, I need to try and keep things down, and so, uh, so that'll be part of, uh, of, of the voice change. We are beginning to move toward the close of our series of messages on the book of 1 Corinthians. I hope that many of you have taken this opportunity to join in this little journey by reading uh, sections of 1 Corinthians, maybe more than once. Uh, we've tried to also email out together with the bulletin, give you guys a little bit of a heads up on what the uh, specific uh, chapters are that we're going to be speaking about. And so this morning, those of you that read your emails at least, you know that we're heading into chapter 11 and 12 this morning. Uh, Jesse, quite a few weeks ago, almost two months ago by now, did a great job of introducing uh, our little journey through this book of 1 Corinthians. And, and one of the things that he spoke about is that a lot of the book of 1 Corinthians kind of revolves around um, their problem of disunity. Uh, it's kind of interesting because the, the church in 1 Corinthians or the church that this letter is written to, the church in Corinth, was a church made up of, uh, of a lot of new, uh, young uh, Christians. And uh, I think it goes without saying that, that one of the things that often accompanies uh, new, young Christians is, uh, is an, uh, a great level of excitement and passion and, uh, and enthusiasm and, uh, and a lot of that tends to be rather contagious. And, and then on the flip side, however, um, and this is what we talked about quite a bit two weeks ago, uh, it's that same enthusiasm that is not yet seasoned with maturity that can lead to strong temptations to disagree. And sometimes to disagree very strongly. Disagreeing about who is right and, and who's wrong and about who's better and, and who's more on fire. And two weeks ago, I challenged you to be willing simply to be a, a normal Christian. To be less focused on being super Christian, proving how committed and how on fire you are with doing radical things and being more committed to simply being a normal humble servant of Jesus Christ and a servant of your fellow man. See, a lot of disunity in Christianity comes from the attempt to be uh, better than or greater than or more knowledgeable than or more right than or more fi on fire than or more committed than. And it's our need to somehow kind of be 
uh, above others that forces us to passionately disagree with others sometimes. And so my way of being baptized is more authentic than your way of being baptized, and we have disunity. And my way of singing is more biblical and right than your way of singing, and we move into disunity. And our way of doing communion is more biblically accurate than your way of doing community and so, uh, communion, and so we move into disunity. And, and, and if you want to look at the degree to which I am willing to sacrifice my personal pleasure for the sake of Christianity, and then surely everybody else should be willing to do those same radical things to prove how committed they are to Christianity and to following Jesus, and we move to disunity. And so Paul has this dilemma in the book of, this dilemma in the book of 1 Corinthians because while he wants to encourage this passion and this enthusiasm and, and this, this thing of being on fire for God, he wants to encourage that. But at the same time, he recognizes that often it is that pursuit of being on fire for God and, and, and pursuing what is right without any, um, uh, no holes barred. And it is that very passion that often brings people into the place where they are not united with each other, where they can't work together because they disagree on how this is supposed to look. I remember very clearly, um, I think I remember clearly, I'm going to test myself a little bit, um, again referring back to the introductory message that Jesse preached, um, and, and I, I quickly jotted down a couple of notes. By the way, if you guys take notes, um, if you guys are on your phones in church, I can see that from up here, by the way, first of all. Uh, secondly, uh, I just assume that you're taking notes. Uh, for what I'm, what I'm speaking about. So go ahead, be on your phones. That's, I'm totally fine with that. You're looking up the scripture passages and you're taking notes because that's what I do when I'm on my phone uh, in church. That's, that's what I do. I, I, I take notes. And so I was taking notes when Jesse was preaching and I, I, believe this is, I believe I'm quoting him correctly when I say it like this. He said, um, The cross breaks the back of boasting and the cross breaks the back of disunity. And I, and I love that. I absolutely uh, love that. Uh, when we focus on the cross, suddenly it's not nearly as important anymore who does things exactly one way and who does things exactly the other way and, and all the little things that we can become disunited and disagree about and so, the cross, and, and, and Paul does that. And we looked at that here last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he really, really, really um, um, emphasizes to the people to focus on, on the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, at the beginning of chapter 15, he kind of, all of these things that we've talked about, you know, that's all great, all about how to do church and all of that, it's fantastic. But here's the crux of the matter is the cross and the resurrection. Uh, of Jesus. That's, that's what it boils down to. So this morning, we're kind of going to, because of how time frame worked out and everything else, that we wanted to do chapter 15 last week when it was Easter Sunday morning, um, we're going backwards a little bit and we're going back to chapter 11 and 12 where Paul takes a slightly different approach on this disunity thing and he addresses um, what we're going to call um, three areas of disorder. Uh, probably that's closely related, disunity and disorder. I'm not exactly sure how different they are. Disunity 
or disorder, let me rather say, usually comes from disregarding the needs and rights and thoughts and feelings of others. I get accused of this from time to time, uh, but I'm going to do it again this morning. I'm going to use our family as an example. Um, I have to pay them, by the way, every time I... I think there's a debt somewhere that's, that's kind of being chalked up slowly. Every time I mention them, uh, it's ka-ching. Um, we have a lot, of, a lot of life in our home. We have had a lot of life in our home over the years. A lot of noise uh, and often close to chaos. Uh, to many, it would have looked like disorder. Often it was disorder. Uh, often it still is disorder. Uh, we've had two new young men that have been spending some time with our family over the past year, and I have to confess, I've often felt sorry for them. The noise when we all get together uh, has a very strong semblance uh, of disorder. A lot of fun, but the inherent danger that comes with that is that you begin to cross over into the disorderly category. You move into a zone where you disregard the needs and rights and thoughts and feelings of others. And so over the years, it's been one of the biggest challenges in our household. I would say, because of the the life and the enthusiasm and the fun, one of our biggest challenges has been to continue to remind each other to continue to think about and be aware of the people around you. Hey, remember, mom's on the phone. Or... Let's give so-and-so a chance. Usually it was, uh, it was one particular person that doesn't butt in quite as easily in our family. Let's give so-and-so a chance to say something. Be aware of, pay attention to, think about, and, and observe. Concern yourself somewhat with others. That typically is uh, the, the biggest problem when you have a problem of disorder. Is people not taking note of, not being aware of, disregarding. And so Paul here addresses three areas of disorder in the church, things that are in some some kind of confusion. The first is on how women should behave in the church. Uh, That's chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. The second is on how to do the Lord's Supper or communion. That's the last half of chapter 11. And then the third in this little section is almost all of chapter 12, where he addresses the disorder and the confusion that comes with uh, spiritual gifts and how to exhibit spiritual gifts. So, so here we have a, a group of passionate, immature believers. They're trying to do church together. And they find themselves in a place of, of disorder. And so Paul writes this in an attempt to try and help this little church move from disorder to unity. Uh, that, that's, that's the goal, is for them to move from disorder to unity. So we jump into chapter 11. This is a good point for me to have a little drink of water. Because this pertains to how women should behave in the church. Yeah, Barb. One of the first things you're going to take note of is, again, uh, like much of the rest of this book, uh, Paul addresses a very specific issue. It appears as though in this church, filled with new Christians, there is disagreement about how it should look when women gain freedom in Christ. 
A cultural study of their day would confirm very quickly that it was a given that men are above women in their level of importance. And one of the ways to show that was the fact that women were to wear head coverings as a symbol of the fact that they were under authority. And they were to wear that whenever they went out in public. We assume that Paul here in Corinth had preached similarly to how he preached or how he wrote in the book of Galatians, where in chapter 3, verse 28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And so these people have heard this, and they, 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 they say, Freedom! Finally, freedom! Finally, no more of this being oppressed. And so it appears as though many women celebrated this by throwing off any and all constraints. We are free. Hallelujah. And no doubt this led to all kinds of disunity because these new believers had all kinds of varying ideas how this new freedom should and should not look. You read through these verses and, you, and you're going to see the different questions that clearly they have as they're trying to sort all of this out. <coughs> <coughs> If we are free, then is it okay for women to get their hair cut? If we are free, are men still, though, in some way above women? Oh, and what about us men? Should men keep on wearing a head covering? Should women keep on wearing a head covering? If so, when should they wear it and when not? Should men cut their hair? Should women cut their hair? Why? Why not? Do we all go to church together? Do both men and women preach and pray publicly when we all go to church together? And on and on and on. If you read through this first uh, series of verses in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, if you, if you could imagine that Paul is answering questions, then these are all questions that you would imagine are on that list that Paul is trying to speak to over here. And they are experiencing some, some disorder when it comes to all of this. Crazy thing is, here we are 2,000 years later, and we are still struggling with some of this stuff. We still don't know exactly how to do all of this. And so Paul here decides that it will be best to give them some guidelines to help them create some order within the realm of their culture to combat this disorder that they've got. And so he says, you know, taking culture into consideration and your faith into consideration and your freedom into consideration, here's how I would suggest that it would work best. And I'm not going to tell you what that is. We can't get into all those details right now. I would gladly at some point, I have actually at one point, some of you may remember, preached a message on those verses, specifically that little section here in our church, but the interesting thing is, as you study this section, you come to understand that although Paul speaks to their specific situation of disorder, in the middle of that, he tries to present a principle. And the principle here is, if you want to be part of a church family, then you need to consider others. You need to consider the people around you. As you enjoy your personal freedom and as you express your, your freedom and, and 
you need to stop for a moment and remember this is not just about you and your freedom. You need to consider others. Being part of a body of believers means that you need to consider the people around you. Much of the teaching here on this topic comes out of their culture. See, when you are, uh, when you uh, live lived in or in in that culture, uh, it was, if we understand it correctly, it was only temple prostitutes that would get their hair cut and that would run around in public with nothing covering their heads. Uh, if you take that into consideration when expressing your newfound freedom, that has some pretty serious implications. You might be uh, sitting here listening and saying, wondering, okay, so, so really, I mean, if, if, if they want to run around without their head covered uh, or, or with, with their hair cut off and without their head covered, and if they want to imply by that that they're temple prostitutes, I mean, that's up to them. They're only hurting themselves. Uh, 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 hang on. Where does this considering others things come from? Uh, keep working with me on this. Track, track with me a little bit here. Um, so now we have these, these women that are expressing their freedom uh, by cutting their hair and running around with their head uncovered. And, um, and so they're going to church together with or side by side with men. And the public is, is watching this and they, 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 they're thinking temple prostitutions. Uh, temp, temple prostitution. And they understand how that works. And now they see women walking into the church with hair cut and head uncovered. And men walking into the same church together with them. Ah, okay, we know what happens in there. So, out of consideration for the people that are attending church together with you... Be aware of what the public thinks about these men that are walking into church together with you. If you want to walk into church like that, they're looking at the men that are walking into church beside you and they're, they're judging the, the men that are walking into the church beside you. They understand exactly what kind of men they are. And so as you make these decisions, consider others. What kind of an impact does this have on the people that are attending church together with you. Don't just think of yourselves. And then as you go into the end of or the second half of chapter 11, uh, the same principle continues to be real. Second half of chapter 11, he's talking about eating meals together uh, with the rest of your church family. I need to read a couple of verses here. Um, verses 20 to 22 in chapter 11. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So let's set the stage a little bit here. What he's talking about is they, they often, as a church family, they often did meals together. Usually people would bring their own food to these meals. And so you have the very wealthy people and they bring a meal that reflects their wealth. And so they, they bring a meal that's, that's huge. And, uh, and not just food. They also bring um, stuff to drink uh, that's costly. 
And so there's all kinds of wine, and they've got this huge spread, and they show up to this, this dinner for church together with all the other church people, and they spread out all of their stuff, and they sit down together with their other wealthy friends, and they dive right in, and they start drinking, and they're partying, and they have this good meal together. And meanwhile, here comes the, the poor people in the church, and they've got their few little morsels, and they're sitting there, and they're eating a couple of little things, and they've got no money to buy alcohol. And they're, so they're sitting there, and they've got this little bit of stuff that they're doing. And they likely showed up late because they were working late, all of them and their family, to try and earn their little bit of living. And so by the time they even get there with their few little morsels, the people sitting over there, the wealthy people, they've already gorged themselves, and they're already drunk, and they're already well inebriated. And here these people come walking in, and they'd like to have a little bit of fellowship together with those people. And, well, I guess fellowship is pretty useless right now because they're already gone. And so Paul says, consider each other. Don't you have homes? Like, if you guys want to do this, go, go ahead, but do it at home. When you get together as a church, then think of each other. And so then consider those people and <coughs> do your meals in such a way that when you get together, you can all be blessed. And you can all be built up. And you can all encourage each other. And so Paul makes this strong point in chapter 11. If you want to be part of a body, if you want to be part of a church family, consider others. Think about others. And as I have thought about this, especially this past week, I don't actually know of another more difficult message for our generation than this one. Consider others. Um... We've, we bought in. Uh, our culture has done a fantastic job of teaching us that it's all about you. What you want, how you feel, what's good for you, what's good for your family. You need to take care of yourself. Do what's good for you. And, and we struggle with not buying into that. Uh, we're bombarded with it from all angles. And so this message is incredibly relevant for us. If we want to be a church that reflects who God is, consider others. Think about the people around you. Apparently the um, founder of Salvation Army, William Booth, many, many, many years ago, um, earlier years of the organization, uh, they had their annual convention. He couldn't make it because of failing health. And so he sent a telegraph to all the convention goers. And it consisted of one word. And the word was others. That was the entire message for his whole mission. I want you all to know that our mission is others. Consider Others. We need to move on to chapter 12 and quickly take a little bit of a look there. It's a great chapter. It's about spiritual gifts, one of my favorites. Uh, being part of the body of Christ means being willing to recognize your giftedness. I think that's pretty significant in our culture. Being a humble servant, which I encouraged you to do a couple weeks ago. Being a normal Christian, not focusing on doing radical things and being seen by everybody. Everybody taking note of how amazing you are. All that stuff that we talked about a couple weeks ago does not mean that we don't recognize the giftedness that God has put in us. Paul is pretty clear in these verses that each one has been given gifts 
and abilities by God. He says it in verse 7. He says it in verse 11. He says it in verse 18. He says it again in verse 21. Each one, everyone, every part. I feel like this is a real challenge for each of us to be willing to believe that you have been given a gift and to take the time to self-reflect and identify the gift. The average North American churchgoer finds that very, very difficult. And I asked myself the question this week, why is that? I have a thought. I'm going to present it to you and you can think about it. I think this might be it. See, if I admit that I have been given a gift by God, and if I take the time to identify what that gift is, then I become responsible for that gift. See, I can't simply receive a gift from God and then turn around and not do anything with it. So if I rather ignore this whole concept altogether, it, or if I refuse to take the time to identify the gift, then I can keep on sitting here doing my own thing, or in some cases simply doing very little, very little at all. Because after all, that person over there, oh yeah, they've got a gift, and they're so much more gifted than I am. I believe this is a North American Christian churchgoer problem. Paul is pretty clear here that being part of the body means that you be willing to recognize your giftedness. You be willing to recognize, I have been given gifts by God, and you be willing to take the time and do the self-reflection needed in order to identify that gift, and then we'll talk about what happens then in just a moment. I have sometimes challenged people to think about this in a very human way. So someone comes up to you and gives you a pretty amazing gift. And you see that gift being, and you just quickly ignore that there's a gift at all. Rude. Or you, somebody reaches out and gives you a gift, and you take the gift, and you quickly turn around and you don't open it. Because I don't really want to know what's inside. Because if I know what's inside, then I'm somehow responsible to use it well. And so it would be just much easier to just not, not open it. Or you take the gift and you open it and you see something amazing inside and you take all the credit for yourself. Woohoo! Somehow I've earned this gift for myself. All of those are very um, real ways in how people treat gifts spiritual gifts that God is giving them or that God is trying to give them. If you take a look here, verses 7 to 10, uh, 10, Paul lists some pretty amazing gifts. Gift of wisdom, gift of faith, gift of healing, gift of speaking in tongues, etc., etc. And then he concludes this little section by saying in verse 11, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. There's no credit in this for you. God is the giver of the gift. You simply receive the gift, and you open it up, and you identify what it is, and then you begin to look around, consider others, and then you begin to look around to see how can this now be used. And don't panic, don't stress. If you really want to use that gift, God is going to show you how. Often we become so, I won't know what to do with it. I won't know where to use it. I won't know. Don't worry about that. It's God's job. 
He'll figure it out for you if you are a humble servant, ready and willing. Your gift was given to you, if you take a look at verse 7, for the common good. And so if you want to be part of a church family, if you want to be part of a body, then that becomes the, the last of our three points here for this morning. Being part of the body means that we are willing to work for the whole. We're willing to use what we have for the well-being of everyone, for the common good. In verses 7 to 11, and again at verses 27 to 31, he talks about the different types of gifts and abilities, and there's a pretty amazing uh, list there, and he's given you a gift, and he's given you a gift, and you a gift, you and you, and he's given me a gift, and, and, and it's pretty amazing that we have all of these different gifts that God has given us, and then in that little section in between those two lists of gifts, in that little section in between, he talks about, or he illustrates all of this with the, with the illustration or the physical picture of a human body. And he says, all of you, with all of these different gifts, you are all a part of one body. Every one of you is a different part. Every one of you has a different gift. But you all use those gifts and you all work together for the common good, for the well-being. <coughs> Voice change isn't quite done yet. For the well-being of everybody. And so if you want to be a part of a body, it means being willing to work for the whole. We can't at this time of year. Um, not if we're going to do an illustration of the body. Um, I, I think we, we, we have to pretty much go with hockey player. I mean, everybody's is kind of excited. The Jets are back in the playoffs for the first time in who knows how many years, and, and there's actually a legitimate chance that we might win a game or two. And so, um, so here we go. Think for a few minutes about a hockey player. When the sportscasters talk about the talent of an amazing hockey player, uh, I think pretty much this is how I hear them do it or talk about, they, they talk about he's got amazing speed, he's got very good hands, he's got a great heart, he's got incredible vision. And, and I ask, is that all it takes to be a good hockey player? Well, no, a few other things, like he needs, he needs good legs to power him down the ice. He needs his eyes to see where he's going to skate. And he needs his eyes to see where the puck is going to come from. And then arms to reach out, his hands in a stick, and soft hands in order to be able to pick up the puck. And all of that, that all has to work together in, the, in, in, one, in one united effort if this guy's going to be any kind of a hockey player at all. He needs them all. Oh, but guess what? Those are only the visible functions of the body. The hands, the eyes, the legs, the feet, the fingers, the arms, the shoulders, the knees, others. Uh, is that all it takes to be a good hockey player? Well, actually, uh, if you think about it for just a moment, there are a host of invisible body functions that all have to be doing their part equally as well. If these hands will be able to receive the pass and take the shot, what about the heart? What about the lungs and the liver and the kidneys? and the stomach, and on and on we could go. They all have to be just as active as the hands and the leg if this player is going to take a shot on that goal at all. But who gets the credit in the end? Have you ever heard a sportscaster say, that guy's got great pancreas? Or that guy's got incredible kidneys? No, it's always just the hands. It's the hands and the legs that get all the credit. Maybe the eyes once in a while, maybe the brain a little bit once. But pretty much, 
I've never heard them talk about some of those invisible parts of the body. That if they were not doing their function, there would be no chance in the world that this guy would be any kind of a, any kind of a hockey player at all. And I sometimes wonder, don't those other parts of the body get jealous once in a while that they're never mentioned? When they are so faithfully doing their part of the, of the job also? That's kind of a stupid question. I think about those things once in a while. No. No, because if one part of the body gets credit, that credit goes to the whole. If one part of this body gets credit, that credit goes to the whole. It goes to all of us together. Because none of us could do it by ourselves. No hockey player could be a hockey player if he were all hands, even though the hands get all the credit. No hockey player could be a hockey player if it was all feet, even though they get all the credit. I believe that's how it is in the body of Christ. And so Jesus prays in John chapter 17, just before he goes back to heaven, as he's thinking about the future of this church, the group of people that he's leaving behind, and he's thinking about what are they going to become? How are they, are they going to survive? Are they going to be able to make it? And Jesus prays for them, and this is what his prayer is. He prays for them, and he says, Help them to be one, Father, just as we are one. If you want to be part of a church... You've got to be willing to work for the well-being of the whole. Unselfishly throw your gifts and your abilities into the center of the table. I think we all know there is no team, whether it be hockey or any other sport, there's no team better than the one that has a group of individuals that all check their egos at the door. And they walk into that room together with their teammates. Their egos are all left outside. And they unselfishly put everything that they are on the table. And they say, this is all about the success of this team. I don't want to hear anything about me. It's all about the whole. And when all these body parts unselfishly put their abilities together, we become a force to be reckoned with. I love the church. I believe the richness of the church lies in the ability of a group of different people with different gifts and talents and abilities and even if we want to keep going different likes and dislikes and opinions and even different convictions in some areas. When a group of different people focus on worshiping God through Jesus, honoring Him, praising Him, glorifying Him, recognizing that He is so much bigger than any one of us and it's all about Him and then humbly and submissively they consider others, they recognize their giftedness, and they unselfishly work for the whole. Amen.